Welcome to this episode of Right Stuff with me, Chris Fitzgerald, through the Head Stuff Podcast Network. In this episode, I speak to Hugo Hamilton, acclaimed author of memoirs and novels, including Speckled People, The Sailor in the Wardrobe, Disguise, and his latest, Dublin Palms. We speak here about Dublin Palms and the process of writing fictional memoir, growing up in a multilingual home, and Hugo gives us a reading from Dublin Palms as well. So please rate, review, subscribe, and you can follow me on Twitter at Right Stuff Chris. Here is Hugo Hamilton. So Hugo, thanks a million for joining me on Right Stuff. Um, we're down here at Listowel Writers Week. I presume it's not your first time here. No, I've been no. here many times before. It's the um, it's a great festival. Yes. Get the greatest welcome here. Yeah. So it's always always good to be back. Yeah, and mm. I caught a bit of your event here earlier where you had mm. this room in the Palm of Your Hand. And I wonder, for a writer in general, or especially yourself, What's that part of the gig like, you know, where you're kind of going out meeting people like writers? There's something inherent in writers to be solitary in a way. But then this part of the job where you're out and you're speaking publicly, how does that sit with you? I know you must be very comfortable with it now, but was it ever something that you had a bit of trepidation about? Uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to to meet audiences. Uh, yeah, as you say, it's a very solitary occupation. Um, I mean, my my desk is a very safe place. I can kind of rule the world a little bit from my desk, you know. Uh, but it's wonderful to be out talking, talking to people and um, and the questions that people have. Uh, I mean, that's the conversation that a writer has with with the reader, and mm. it's wonderful to actually meet the readers. <clears throat> what kind of feedback have you been getting recently with Dublin Palms? Like. I presume mm. a lot of people's comments are relating to your experience. Um, mm. What has it been like in this recent situation um, with people? Yeah, it's it, it's always a great thing to get the book out there. You you know, uh, and you never know what the reaction is going to be. I mean, it was lovely talking to Pat Kenny uh, this week. You know, uh, he he loves the book and. Uh, if one person loves the book, you know you're very happy. You know it's, uh, um, but uh, at that point, you know the book is is now out there. You know it's no longer no longer belongs to you. It's become this other uh, other thing. It's out of my control. I don't, I can't change things. You know, so it's a, it's a it's a nice feeling of letting go. Yeah, and. This book in particular, I mean, some people are calling it the third installment of autobiography. You called it yourself a blurry self-portrait, which I found a nice description of it. Um, so, like, in that way, is it even more personal to you because there are autobiographical elements in it? Yeah, there's a... <clears throat> there's a I like to give the, you know, example of painters. You know, there's a, you know, Lucy and Freud created these portraits of people, you know, with sort of slightly... This looks slightly blurry and you know just raw brush strokes. You know, there's another great German uh, artist, uh, Frank Auerbach, who used to do portraits of people and then scrape them off. So there was very little of them left, yeah. just this blurry sort of washed-out image of them left. You know, yeah. I see myself a bit like that in this in, in the self-portrait. I I I, uh, I tell facts that are true but also sort of I bend the narrative a little bit to to make it so it's made up in 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 some ways as well I think anytime you you deal with memory 
and anytime you tell something from memory it almost by virtue of the fact that it's told in words in language it has a sort of a an, an invented quality uh, and that's sort of it's it's good like you can get at the truth in some ways you can shape it uh, much better uh, and that's that's been my writing experience but the blurring then does that happen through the blurring that happens through memory and as you're mm. remembering the events of your life are you willing yourself to make it semi-fictional like are are you kind of holding back from it sometimes or in the writing process as that is happening and you're remembering your life which I mean memory will inherently come into that but to what extent do you allow yourself to make it somewhat fictional um, well I think I think even the process of writing memory you're never going to get exactly the uh, the memory exactly but the uh, for example, there, there are lots of writers who write the same memory many times over. Mm. Paul Auster mm. has a yeah. particular scene uh, in a thunderstorm, which he writes, keeps writing again and again in different ways. Yeah. To and it's really a matter of, you know, for writers to get a hold of this thing and shake it a little bit mm. and have a look at it. Mm. Uh, and that's what I'm basically doing mm. with life experiences, uh, getting a hold of them and trying to trap them and sort of have a good look at the thing you know yeah. so it's n never about sort of being completely factual it's mm. it's a way of approaching these memories and somehow I think they're they're never like raw witness box testimony they are more like something you you have to reshape or re reinvent you know because there are like it is quite detailed, Dublin Palms, especially, I think, like uh, mm. the minor details of events and occasions in it are there. Mm. So, I mean, even those minor details, I wonder, as I was reading it, I wonder, did you keep a diary or something? Or where do all of those elements that mm. you couldn't possibly remember, how do you draw upon those? Um, <clears throat> well, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's located in Dublin where I am living. Uh, so a lot of a lot of the places I'm talking about, a lot of the events, uh, I I can recall them faithfully. But that's that's the business of a writer, yeah. is to kind of fill things out, you know, and to kind of shape shape a memory. You know, everybody knows this, but a memory can be just almost like one line, one image, um, <clears throat> and. It stays in this kind of blurry, but very potent mm. uh, image. When you come to writing it, like you have mm. to sort of paint around the image. You yeah, have to yeah. kind of make it make it clear, you know. Mm. Um, so that's the business of the writing. Yeah. <clears throat> and some a theme which has come up um, in this book and previous books of yours as well. <clears throat> Uh, is that of language and mm. your upbringing mm. in a kind of trilingual environment, could you call it that? Yeah, yeah. German, Irish and English. And mm. obviously that has had a huge effect on your life and you've, you've kind of described it even as a kind of traumatic elements that arose from that. Mm. Um, confusing, I suppose, was for you growing up with those three languages. Yeah, it, it cast me into a, a very strong silence. 
I didn't um, I I didn't easily participate mm. in social events or you know in society it was difficult for me to enter mm. into society and uh, that sort of silence stayed with me for many years the only way that I came to terms with that silence was to write uh, I had to find a way of you know entering language and that's the only way of successful way of doing that was was through writing yeah. um, <clears throat> so I was a very silent person in my 20s and 30s, you know, so... Uh, Something ironic about that, isn't there? Like having three languages available to you, but being very <clears throat> silent with them and... Well, yes, it's it's ironic because mm. like, but, but the fact was that <clears throat> it was almost like I was uh, telling my story in the wrong language. Okay. Or, or, or groping for words in, in a language that didn't, that had no listeners. Um, I'm not the only person who writes about that, you know, like, I mean, there's a, the, you know, the Nobel Prize winner, Herta Miller, for example, who grew up in Romania. Uh, she um, describes very similar situations where she goes out from her home in Transylvania in Timisoara and walks out and the flowers don't answer her. You know, yeah. she calls the flowers by a different name, but they kind of the flowers almost answer her back yeah. in Romanian. Yeah. She speaks German, and 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 the landscape is yeah. is in a different language. So it's very familiar to me yeah. uh, that that whole um, dislocation right. in language. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and dislocation is a a theme that comes up a lot as well. And <clears throat> but just on language again, like I'm not sure if you've ever heard of uh, the kind of linguistic idea of the, there's a sapir wharf hypothesis or something that's linguistic determinism which kind of says that the language that you possess determines the thoughts that you have so I wonder and this is just a theory and it has been contradicted quite a lot but I wonder if that is kind of a source of your I mean does was what was your inner language and what were the thoughts that you were having like in a kind of trilingual environment was that inhibiting your thoughts or was it kind of expanding your thoughts to such an such a point where it was hard to deal with. Well, yeah, that's it's a very interesting way of describing exactly what ha what happens when you are in these in those kind of zones between languages. Mm. Um, for example, the Irish language. You know, I I constantly reiterate this that when I speak Irish, I'm in a different country. Like it's almost like the landscape shifts and Identity, I'm yeah. actually mm. in a different space and I speak that language I have different memory mm. in that language oh. and the same thing occurs when I'm speaking German of course I have a different history mm. I have the whole history of the Second World War and all the times mm. and the, the, the story that my mother's gone to <clears throat> and that then when I'm standing on the street talking to somebody in English mm. here in Ireland mm. those countries and those languages are somehow irrelevant right they're they're not part of the conversation so i it's almost like this kind of uh, a trapdoor mm. that you fall into uh you fall backwards into a trapdoor into this other country and you mm. it's almost like a sort of a a star wars episode like, oh, yeah. where where i step off the world into a different 
into a different universe. Yeah, there's, I suppose like three languages gives you three identities in a way, doesn't it? And you kind of, you're switching yourself as well as switching the language. Well, that's it. And and you find yourself talking to people if they don't have that experience. Mm. uh, It's suddenly part of you is completely irrelevant. Mm. Uh, And that's, that's, the the formative experience in, in you know, managing those three languages yeah. was often coming across uh, n- n- times and sort of situations where my entire life was irrelevant. Yeah, you know? right. <clears throat> There's actually a beautiful part of Dublin Poems that deals with this. I think it's, um, it's from the top there. I think oh, right. it kind of deals with it very well. <clears throat> yeah. I grew up in a language nightmare between German, Irish, and English. I could never be sure what country I was in. My mother was German, my father was Irish. She came to Ireland to learn English, but ended up teaching my father German. He refused to speak English. She never learned Irish. At home, we spoke her language. We went to school in the ghost language. My father was a revolutionary who prohibited us from speaking English. It had the effect of turning all language into a fight, a fortress, a place of hiding. It felt like emigrating every time I went out the front door. On the street, I had to look over my shoulder to see what words I could be at home in. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Hugo. That's exactly what we were talking about, you know. Um, and it's funny because you often hear about, like, the, the benefits of bilingualism and, you know, bringing children up in a bilingual home and the kind of the cognitive benefits of all that and everything. Like, what? For, for you, there, I'm sure there were some positive aspects of that as well, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I meet people constantly who have sort of mm-hmm. uh, different languages in the home. And uh, I mean, it's m- much more common now mm-hmm. than, it, than it ever was uh, in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. But um, and I was told that as a child. Mm-hmm. Isn't it wonderful? You can speak three languages. But it took me a lifetime to realize that it, it actually is. Uh, it gives you this multiple view of the world from these very different yeah. experiences. Yeah. Um, but it's not an easy one, you know. And I, I, I very often come across children and parents, uh, and parents whose children like refuse the other language. They will always feel at home in the language that their the other children speak and whether it's Sweden or Spain you know they will feel uncomfortable speaking the the other language because it doesn't yeah it 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 makes them uncool in front of their their and it gives them it exposes them Mm. and so that very often is that that experience is there and it probably is only later that they realize oh it's great Oh, yeah. I've been given Spanish or mm. been given German, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's like when you're being forced to learn an instrument when you're young and you've been toiling away at a piano and you give it up and then later you realize, oh, well, yeah, it's stuck with that, you know, it's like the skill or this other world you could kind of, that's right, you could interact with. But um, yeah, just finally, mm. then, Hugo, thanks a million for your time. Um, I'm just wondering now, after your kind of decades of experience with writing, is it as easy as it was when you began? Um, and I wonder if the success that you've had. Um, has influenced your ability to write now and how does that affect you? Um, it's an interesting thing. I, I don't think it gets any easier. Mm. I mean, 
you're just more professional and you don't have any of the existential questions about like why should I write would anybody be interested you don't have those kind of uh, questions over yourself so much and you have a desk you know I can write anywhere it's <clears throat> it should be easier but then um, because you're more skillful uh, the older you get you actually learn how to write novels when you're when you're older you know but part of the fun and part of the challenge and the, um, the part of that is is actually digging it out you not you don't know where you're going to end up with any book you know so part of part of writing is this digging experience and this this turning things over and seeing what you come up with uh, that's part of the excitement of writing Mm. And sorry, finally, really finally, what's next for you then? Are, are you there yet? Have you kind of uh, started something? Well, I've, I'm always I'm always working on something. Uh, yes, a new novel. Um, I'm sort of I've just adapted one of my books into a play. Uh, the play, the story with Nuala Fuelan, uh adapted that into a play. So yes, I'm. I said this earlier during my talk, you know, I'm very much at home here in Ireland, I'm very much at home in Berlin, but for a writer, your home is your writing. Your desk. Yeah, my desk. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading the next one. You've got thanks a million. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you really, so much. Really, thanks a million. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.